are with the Looking Glass Forum, we are fully engaged in this struggle, this cultural conflict to overcome the sophistry, the well-crafted deception of this neo-communist in media, sports, academia, and your local city council. The lies are many, but the truth is one. So we're back here today with our crash course, and we're moving through these episodes, and we're trying to vivify and bring to life again the forgotten history, what it is to be an American. And we, so many of us have spent the last 50 years going through public schooling, where we're subject to learn the perspective of history that the prevailing teachers' unions decided for us to learn. In many cases, they're coming from institutions of higher learning, supposedly, in academia, where they're being put through propaganda training courses, which lead them to become neo-Marxists and neo-communists. And then they end up with their credentials in your kids' schools, teaching them whatever leftist doctrines they feel that your kids need to learn. In many cases, we're not saying the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. And in many cases, since the 60s, we don't have any understanding of the Bible or prayer or the moral foundations and underpinnings upon which America's constitutional republic was built. So as we're, like I said, as we're moving through these episodes, we are finding ourselves situated here in the middle of this widening social chaos in America. And there are unseen political forces having been long prepared, well-funded, which are moving forward on this typical communist playbook. And I might point out here, we were talking the other day, that if it was a surprise to the international elite, this ancient power structure that's been in place long before 1776, when we had our Protestant revolution of free men. And so it follows that if it was a surprise that Hillary Clinton was not elected and they were so confident, I mean, she barely even ran a campaign and they were, they were utterly drunken on their hubris to think that the American people was just going to fall behind the, the politically recognizable name of the Clintons and that somehow that they weren't just going to vote against her just for whoever was available, which happened to be Donald Trump. I think that we can see that they're not very well balanced in the way that they're looking at the events. They're not well balanced intellectually or politically. They they are just foaming at the mouth to get power in America in order to use the state apparatus and law enforcement mechanisms to send this country over the cliff. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. Everything was kind of slowly declining under Obama, but everything was pretty typical from an outside optical point of view. But there were a lot of dangerous things happening behind the scenes. And it was hard for people to accept, I think, that there was a literal conspiracy. The Fast and Furious play where the federal agents were, were killed and the bad guys ended up with all the guns is, I think, a typical evidence of this buildup towards the overthrow and the wide insurrection that they were building under the Obama administration. So they had already laid out that Hillary would win. And can you imagine if we went through the debacle, the, the entire first two years could have been given enough time for her to, to try to, to round up all the guns and the gun owners. And then they would have hit us with that COVID-19 brainwash, this devastating weapon against our minds. And we can already see by the figures that this supposed COVID epidemic is less deadly than the common cold. And apparently, corona family of viruses, there's somewhere between 14 and 16 different viruses, including the common cold, which are considered to be within the corona family. So you're not going to get a single common cold in this country without being able to test positive for coronavirus. So you can see that there's really just a bunch of people in the back room laughing at our ignorance. And they have us all wearing masks because we must all bow down on our knee to the United Nations and the 
and these international think tanks and the World Health Organization and the World Bank and all these, you know, 20th century world organizations that we're all supposed to understand as, as our masters over us, the supranational bodies, international criminal court system, which we barely escaped. Even Britain, with their Brexit, barely escaped the machinations of these internationalists, and they wanted to maintain their nationalism. They wanted to maintain their separate identity and their separate money and their political separation, just like we do here in America. We want to maintain our independence. So we can see that these communists and these street radicals are operating with a standard rhetoric, standard communist rhetoric, the removal of and desecration of our, our national history. And this becomes a political makeover for the Democrat Party, the Democrats who are originally opposed to emancipation, who are originally the slave owners, who originally broke with the Union to run down to the South to form the Confederacy. And it was these same Democrats who accepted the support of the Roman papacy, specifically Pope Pius IX, in order to empower themselves to maintain their slavery, to break down the Union, and separate the North American continent into two separate and largely opposed nations. And this would have worked out great for the, the Roman papacy, who, as we said before, is an international political sovereign, not just a, a praying monk, often in some cloistered monastery somewhere praying for us all. He is literally a sovereign who gives direction to his obedient servants and who are looking to establish his authority, his temporal rights, and spiritual rights to be in dominion over everyone on earth. And when you are engaging and partaking in Roman religion and sending them your money and your support and practicing their liturgy and their rituals, you are empowering the nation state of the Vatican to become superior and dominant over the rest of the world. And so there, I think that we'll find, as we're moving forward through these episodes, that the Vatican is highly invested in seeing this national republic, this popular government in America, to be collapsed into, into flames and ashes. So now let's get it straight. It's your job to know your history. It's your job to know how we effectively arrived at this dangerous climate of destabilization, offers an existential threat to our, our nation, to your children's future. And if you've been imbibed with this leftist propaganda that has led you to a false conclusion about the facts and has turned you into an enemy and a traitor of your own country and a betrayer of your own people and your own family, then you need to re-educate yourself and unlearn the neo-communist fallacies which are acting in you like an idea virus, an ideological contagion that gestates within your thinking and leads you to become an asset for the enemies of your country. This thinking turns you into an agent provocateur like we are witnessing across the entire nation. People who are following the direction of their communist professors, having become atheists, having no knowledge of God, who are determined that the Jews are to blame for the crisis in international banking, and that the Jews are, you know, enemies with the so-called Palestinian issue. So as we look at the articles and the stories of current events, we must look back to our own history and exercise our due diligence to ensure we fully understand the actual facts. We go back to the Civil War when Lincoln was assassinated, shot right in the head. Mary Surratt, one of the foremost conspirators, was a Democrat and a staunch Catholic. And her home was used to plan the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Jesuit priests would frequent her home on a weekly basis for as far back as two years before the Lincoln assassination. This history is a crucial detail that you need to be aware of. Pope Pius IX failed to destroy the American Union by supporting the Confederacy in the Civil War. And it was unthinkable that the Southern blacks, many of whom, like Nat Turner, had learned to read the Bible, had become a black Baptist Protestant church, when once they had just been pagans and Zulus that were carted over for slavery labor from Africa, they now had become people that had married, had their own households, even though they were in servitude, and had taken up the Bible to learn to read it, and they had become 
a Baptist Protestant church. And it was unthinkable to the Pope that they would now be freed from abject slavery to be emancipated. So you need to get your facts straight. Get your historical details correct. Not only were Catholic Jesuit priests involved in inflaming the outrage that led to the Civil War, but they were directly involved in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. As John Wilkes Booth fled, Catholic priests assisted his escape into Canada. John Wilkes Booth was literally sent to Rome to live under the protection of the Pope. This history is gradually being deleted from the mines and the libraries of modern academia. You need to know that the Pope and his Jesuit soldiers were involved with inciting the Civil War and the assassination of President Lincoln. And that attitude has not changed. Just today, if you go and look on Twitter, the famous Jesuit priest Tom Reese is outside holding a BLM sign and encouraging protesters to fight Whitey in order to regain some unspecified lost freedom. And we can go to the website lepantointernational.org and there's an article here by Michael Hitchborn. It was very recent and it said U.S. Bishops Agency funds groups calling for the killing of cops, rebellion, and rioting. That's the article. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops through the Catholic Campaign for Human Development is funding organizations actively involved in calls for revolution, the killing of police officers, and the defining of police departments. So you can go all into this article. All of this follows a long and sordid history of the CCHD, providing millions of dollars to organizations that have long served as communist front groups waiting for the right time to spark a Marxist revolution. And there's another article, the the Marxist core of the Catholic campaign for human development. So th- th- this has been out. These articles have been going, you can see the history of these articles go back to 2016. So this is a well prepared advance of this ideology and it's being funded by Rome. So we'll just take just a minute here to take a little review of Chris Pinto. He has a very interesting podcast that he does and he is discussing the interesting topic of the Vatican intrigue and influence in the Abraham Lincoln assassination. It's a well-known history that you never heard of. Uh, I am uh, surprised that I have not yet read this work. It's from back in 1897. 1897, and the book, the title, is Rome's Responsibility for the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Rome's Responsibility for the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now, very, very interesting. The author was Thomas M. Harris. Thomas M. Harris, late Brigadier General USV and Major General by Brevet, member of the U.S. Military Commission that investigated and presided over the trial of the conspirators who were convicted of assassinating President Abraham Lincoln. Okay, so here is another 19th century witness who lived uh, during the time of Lincoln's assassination. He lived through this era. And he was not just some guy either. I mean, here here he is, a general in the Union Army, and he was on the U.S. Military Commission that did the investigation uh, and prosecuted the conspirators, uh, those who killed Abraham Lincoln. I mean, this is uh, this is incredible. Uh, now, of course, the other witness is Charles Chinnikwe. He's the one that we typically talk about. And Chinnikwe is referenced by 
virtually everyone who writes about the assassination of Lincoln, there's a number of different books out there on this. Uh, we've carried in the past the book by Paul Serap on the title of which is Who Killed Abraham Lincoln? We have carried that book in the past. Serap is a Canadian author. I did a radio program with him, interviewed him a couple of years back talking about that book, but he spent some 20 years investigating the information that had been published by Charles Chiniqui. Chiniqui, of course, was author of the book 50 Years in the Church of Rome, and we carry that book as well. And it's in that book that Chiniqui writes about his experience as a Roman Catholic priest, relates the fact that he was a friend of Abraham Lincoln for years prior to his assassination, that he spoke with Lincoln on multiple occasions in his lifetime. I mean, just think about this, uh, folks. This is a, a living witness from that era who knew Abraham Lincoln. He was a Catholic priest, meaning he knew a lot of things about the Church of Rome very directly. And the hierarchy of Rome, he knew a lot of things from his own personal experience about the Jesuits and their teachings. And here he writes a book back in the 19th century communicating his firm conviction that the Vatican and the Jesuit order were directly responsible for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Okay, then of course you've got the book we carry, we, we publish, we republish the book. Washington in the Lap of Rome by Justin Dewey Fulton. And I wrote a 70-page foreword to that uh, work, and we still carry that. You can also find it on Amazon and so on, um, our edition of it. But Fulton also cites Charles Chiniqui and about the danger that's, that is there in Washington where Rome is concerned. But what's incredible, Mary Surratt who was the woman who was condemned alongside other conspirators and she was hanged as having participated in the plot to kill Lincoln. If you study modern commentators and so on, in modern times they attempt to argue that Mary Surratt was supposedly innocent that she didn't do anything wrong, and that supposedly our country executed an innocent woman. Well, if you read the book by Chiniqui, he makes it very clear that she was very much a part of this plot to kill Lincoln. Very much a part of the plot. He did not think she was innocent. So that's why I say uh, a, a point made in this book about Lincoln's assassination at one point, the argument is made that the conflict is against the hierarchy of Rome, politically, not necessarily against Catholic people. I thought that was an interesting commentary from the book, but that the priesthood, the bishops, the cardinals, the pope, etc., both the editor and the author of this work believe that they were, they were all fully in support of the assassination of Lincoln. All right, now I want to read... Some of, the, some of the first part of this book by General Harris and what he says. He says this. He says, uh, quote, The anti-Catholic agitation 
that is now so rife in the United States marks a crisis in our history. Hundreds of intelligent, patriotic, conscientious men are earnestly, laboriously, and courageously devoting themselves to this agitation. Newspapers have sprung up all over the country to give warning of danger and to arouse the spirit of American patriotism. Societies are being organized all over the land to protect and defend American institutions against the aggressions and encroachments of a foreign political power. You know, it almost sounds like he could have written this yesterday. But uh, no, this is all the way back in the 19th century, brethren. Think about that, more than 100 years ago. So against the aggressions and encroachments of a foreign political power that has gotten a lodgment meaning gotten lodged, that's what he's saying, in this land of liberty, and that is subsequently bent on the destruction of our free institutions and substituting for them the papal despotism, a despotism that lords it over the minds, the consciences, and the actions of its subjects, and thus renders them incapable of loyalty to any other government. So we'll stop his interview right there, and you can see that we're going to get into the deeper facts of history, the relatively forgotten and unknown aspects of our history in America. And you, you must understand that a lot of the European countries, a lot of the monarchs, were going to continue to be involved in manipulating in the affairs diplomatically, through war, and trying to affect the direction that the American Democratic Republic would grow in. And ultimately, a lot of that manipulation was surrounding the area of banking and how America would finance the growth of the nation. So it becomes necessary that you read, that you stop looking at 30-second news blips on your phone, that you learn how these different polemic forces that have been operating for a thousand years before the invention of America, which actually did away with the slave trade worldwide, a fact that irritates in the extreme these monarchical and papal forces that we're seeing extending their grip over Europe. They had no intention of subjects who are duty-bound to bend the knee for the king. They had no intention that those subjects be fight for their freedom, establish liberty, and free government and self-government. And they had no intention that the massive slave trade that was instituted both by Roman Catholicism for centuries and by Islam, they had no intention that that slave trade, that transatlantic slave trade, would ever be abolished. So this move towards total freedom for the entire populace of the face of the earth is not something that these monarchical despots or these papal tyrants have any interest using their Jesuit soldiers to allow, to permit, to continue. So as you run around the country enjoying your freedoms, you have to realize that this is a brief moment in time, and that there's a before and an after. And if we're not willing to stand up for our rights and to fight for this country, to keep it free from all these different pseudo-revolutionary groups that are being funded and by our enemies overseas, are the international elite, like we said before, the international elite will simply get on their G6s and fly away to other continents. Well, we have to sit here and do it with the smoldering aftermath.
Guys, we're working hard over here to build the case so that we can break through all the years of public school propaganda and CNN, Fox News media bullshit that has wrecked your ability to think and understand the world. We want to make a further point about this. So we're going to have here a very old interview I remember from way back with C.T. Wilcox and Visigoth. And Visigoth is an interesting figure which you can no longer find on the internet. But if you look, you can find some of his old his old videos and old uh, interviews. And that VYZ. Z-Y-G-O-T-H, and that was his handle. So this is going to be an interesting look at Charles Wilcox's book, Transformation of the Republic. So let's have a listen. And the reason we do this, folks, is traditional uh, for uh, Charles and me to open up a little uh, Canadian lore, and usually it's got to do with either the weather or hockey. So uh, at any rate, but you know, Canada does figure in the Civil War, and a lot of people don't, well, of course, if you stick to our, our U.S., history books. You don't really see a whole lot about it. What a big surprise. And not that we're going to focus on that, but there is one thing I wanted to ask you before we get into um, some of the template questions I've asked the others so we can do a comparison and also what you want to do and again, and that is take it uh, past those Civil War years. But I wanted to ask you something because I didn't get a chance necessarily to talk about it with Ralph or, or uh, Al or uh, Eric, but uh, I did mention, I do believe that Jefferson Davis was a regular visitor to Canada. Is that correct? Yeah, he had a, uh, a cottage. Yes, he had a, he had a cottage uh, right on the shores of Lake Erie. All right, now, would that put him in Ontario? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just uh, south, uh, southeast of Hamilton. All right, how far would you say from uh, the most uh, southwestern part of Quebec? province. Quebec. What would you think? I mean, a couple hundred miles? Hundreds of miles. Okay. All right. No, I mean, it, only because, and I think you would agree, that the province of Quebec was probably the most anti-U.S., not because necessarily of the French-Canadian influence, but because the Jesuit influence was very strong. In fact, the strongest in Quebec than any other province. Would that be right? Anti-blue states. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, well, it's, they were, they were, you got to remember, Canada is a confederation okay. of provinces that are sort of semi-autonomous, right? And that was kind of the general direction that the southern states wanted to kind of copy, okay? Right. Uh, and so for that reason, the whole idea of a confederacy was closer to the hearts of people in Quebec and a lot of people in southern Ontario than, 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 than uh, a, a, an idea of what the North kind of had in mind. Uh, right? Yeah. You see what I mean? Yes. And so, so, so there was an affinity there <clears throat> um, to the point where the, the, the Davis government uh, felt quite comfortable in establishing a kitchen cabinet in Montreal. So you had a lot of southern, you had a lot of southern uh, uh, people based out of Montreal. Like you know, um, a lot of politicians were there, a lot of diplomats were there, and there was a lot of uh, uh, spy type activity going back and forth across the border. Right, but uh, Davis's kitchen cabinet was based in Montreal. I mean, what can you say, right? Uh, from uh, 
research you've done, and, and I, uh, I've been removed from this for a while. But Davis and Judah Benjamin both lit out right after the Confederacy crumbled. I know Judah Benjamin got over to England without a scratch. Didn't Davis get apprehended and yet kind of got off easy? As far as I know, yeah, they caught him dressed up as a woman. There you go. That yeah, was sort of like the first don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the reason I say that is because we, are you in the school that we believe largely that Davis was also a tool of uh, the Europeans? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if he's, if he's appealing to the Pope, you know, directly for help and... and, and Wait a minute, are you saying uh, attractive? <laughs> no. Yeah. Right, he's appealing to the Pope. I mean, he went to him for what? Uh, help politically, financially, you know, diplomatically, all that stuff. Right? He asked the Pope for his direct help. And the Pope, uh, Pius IX, said, uh, sure, we'll do all we can in order to, uh, you know, uh, promote... You and I mean the Pope even went so far as to write a letter for for wide publication, uh, acknowledging the legitimacy of the Confederacy, and uh, he acknowledged the fact that there were two competing nations. Right. Right. So um, yeah. Um, Supposedly, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, uh, and and he was all he was also looking for. Uh, help from the European monarchs to the point where he even offered a crown uh, to the uh, like, uh, to, to the to the Habsburgs, right? Says so, you know, like if if you help me out, then I will give you know uh, Napoleon's second cousin or right. whatever he is uh, an actual crown, and the crown would be you know like blessed and and, and sanctioned by the Pope and all that stuff. So he would be like a monarch in the Confederacy. Um, and and what they wanted to do is basically reestablish monarchy on the North American continent. Yeah, and, and that would, you know, who knows if that was, I have to start by asking you this uh, just as a baseline, and that is, who were the perpetrators? Uh, in the Civil War, and if you just want to save some time, not those necessarily in the U.S., but are we led to believe that there were those outside the U.S.? That's one. And two, having stated that, what was the benefit for their involvement? The perpetrators? To instigate the Civil War in the United States. Well, let's see now. I can, I can give you a quote from Otto von Bismarck. Okay. Of Germany, and this comes from my uh, second edition, uh, page 444. Otto von Bismarck said, The division of the United States into federations of equal force was decided long before the Civil War by the high financial powers of Europe, uh, that being the Rothschilds. And the Rothschilds, uh, I don't know if people realize this, are... Uh, are they have an actual title, which is Guardian of the Vatican Treasury. Right. So, Hold it right there, Charles. Now, hang on to your thought, because this is get, this gets deliberately misconstrued. Would you just restate the title? Guardians of the Vatican Treasury. All right. What I hear is, well, they're the Vatican bankers, and that's that they give the money to the Vatican. 
That's not the case. The case is the Vatican charges them with hanging on to the considerable largesse, and when they want it, they ask for it. It isn't like the Rothschilds are financing the Vatican. All I know is that there was a very, <clears throat> a very, very close tie between the two, to the point where they've got like uh, you know an official title. Also got exposed, Charles, to a certain degree, with that Vat Vatican banking scandal, the connection between Rome and the city of London, uh, to include uh, the death of the Vatican banker uh, Calvi, mm. who hung himself, right? <laughs> yeah, full of bricks. Yeah, and the death of John Paul the First. Yeah, yeah. Which and the death of John Paul the First was portrayed pretty close to reality in The Godfather Part Three. That you got it. In the fact, watch that because there's a couple of well, there's quite a few winks that take place in that movie if you're paying attention, which I did not do when I saw that in the movies, but I did buy that and watched it, knowing what I know now, like you know. And uh, oh yeah, uh, there's there's plenty of connectivity that is uh, I wouldn't even say hinted at, almost boldly stated, and very boldly. There you go. That's right. All right. So they, all they did was change the names. Right. You know, but Kelby uh, is uh, is dis is depicted in that movie as a uh, filthy little rat hole banker. Well, they all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. isn't it, wasn't it bold for them to show? that that particular pope was poisoned. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even like, oh, the poor guy had a cold, congestive heart failure. He was poisoned, and they showed that in the movie Godfather 3. All right, so we're going to stop the interview right there, and we have to take into consideration that there's a great deal of information in the background, in the shadows, that can't really truly be hidden from the historical record, but it's really treated, it's propagandized away, and the whole direction and focus of our attention as students and as Americans is directed towards these other neo-communist ideals. So we're looking at constant barrage of class warfare, why he has more than I do, a constant barrage of racial conflict politics that we see being edged forward. And these instabilities work together to start to bring down the social unity of our country. And that's what we are. We're a democratic republic. And as a, a democracy that's built under Republican ideals, we have to stay unified as a people. And if we are divided along all lines, along gender, along sexual orientation, along religious fractures, in every conceivable way, that we cannot stand together as united people. So we really need you to step back, turn the TV off, take a look in a book. Because really, if you have the ability to read, but you're not reading, but you're made illiterate by this new digital internet age, and you can no longer perceive the facts of history, and it doesn't matter what you really believe, it just you need to understand the perspective and the time and place of the people that came before you so you can understand where we're at in the, in the history itself. So even if you're an atheist, you have to understand that this country was built by people who believe that human beings had an inherent and inerrant and inalienable right from the creator to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their own freedom, and which we, we call free enterprise. So you have to understand that the people that are trying to destroy this country have to unmoor the youth and the students coming up in, in academia from these foundational beliefs so that they can turn around and trash this country. So this whole entire project here, this podcast, is to help bring you to an understanding of what the real facts are. So you can kind of get out of your malaise of, of ignorance that you're in. And you can come to understand that even though some of these historical facts 
and some of the, the elements of history aren't very pretty, we need to understand how that is going to affect us in the future. So these different systems of control that we escaped from just 150 years ago, 200 years ago, really got our constitution going. Those same forces of despotism and deconstruction are still in power today. And they don't care what you believe. In fact, everything that you believe has probably been propagated and inculcated by those systems, those European international elite systems of monarchy and international banking and the systems that this small republic was supposed to break us free from. Individual men were supposed to be the kings of their own castles and be able to own their own land freely and to own their own enterprise and their own wealth, and their own money. This would be money that would be separated from the banking kings of Europe. And we could see that over time they have eroded our freedoms and our citizenship. So the citizenship is in the ballot box voting and directing the direction of this country. If a, if a president was to be or not to be, they have been eroding and destroying and undermining all those principles and all those systems, even the police, even politicians, even the election process itself. And you need to understand that, that there are Jesuits who are trying to make sure that the slaves were never emancipated. There were Jesuits behind the killing of Abraham Lincoln. And we'll come to understand that there were Jesuits behind the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And we'll talk about that in later episodes. And you have to understand the proof is totally irrefutable. The historical record cannot be erased. And the books, the articles, the newspapers, the people who lived in those times, who were a part of those events, they cannot be eroded away and they cannot be silenced. Just like that article we read earlier, the, the Roman Church and the gathering of archbishops outside of America are going to side with Marxist communist overthrow of our country. And they're going to side with the Black Lives Matter terrorists and Antifa terrorist groups. And they're going to, they're outside, if you go ahead and look, like I said, the Jesuits are out holding signs for BLM as we speak. So they were behind the push on Abraham Lincoln to go to war. And they were behind the pressure on the South to keep their slaves and to fight for their state's rights and to raise arms against the Union and against their fellow Americans. And we'll find out later on that in the background of all of this, the Rothschild banking institutions were going to finance both the North and the South. And on some level, there were priests in the North carrying on the Northern political doctrine, and there were priests in the South who were pressing Jefferson Davis to go and to make war and to keep the institution of slavery. So we have to understand how cynical the political power of Rome is and how careless and violent it is. And once you take the scales off your eyes and begin to see this, then you can understand history and its true light. Now we're going to take a look at an interesting speech here by Bill Whittle, and he has his own channel on YouTube. And he's talking about the Democrats' the horrible past of racism and the incredible amount of energy that gets expended every day and every way across the media and the internet to try to, to flip this over and to try to hide the fact that the Dems want to pin the Confederate flag, the KKK, the Great Depression, urban decay on the GOP. But it's really the Democrats who were the Confederacy and the slave owners. So let's let's take a look at listen to Bill Whittle here. Dad, let me say right at the beginning that I don't expect you to take my word for any of this. You just be sure to go on out there and look it all up. Okay, here we go. Now, as with the 2016 presidential slate, the Democratic Party is much older than the young Republicans, so let's start pin the tail on the donkey with the first presidential cycle that had a Republican in the race. In 1856, the election was a three-way affair between Democrat James Buchanan, American Party candidate Millard Fillmore, and John C. Fremont, representing the fresh-out-of-the-box Republican Party, otherwise known to Democratic hecklers as the Black Republican Party. That was a racial slur used by the Democrats 
since the Republican Party was created specifically from disaffected Whigs in order to combat slavery. That's why the Republican Party was formed. Now, here are the results. A big Democratic win without a majority for James Buchanan, who would go on to secure the Democratic Party trifecta of having the three worst chief executives in American history. James Buchanan, Jimmy Carter, and President Golfcart. Now, Buchanan sat for four years and watched the Civil War approaching. If there had been golf courses back then, he would have been on them, and maybe he would have taken the top spot. But as it was, he said in private he was going to be the last president of the United States, and he very nearly was. All Buchanan wanted was to survive his term before the shooting started, and so the job of, you know, saving America fell to the next Republican candidate in 1860. Now, what most people don't realize about the election of Abraham Lincoln was that the seven states of the deep Confederacy had left the Union before Lincoln even took office. Not only did the Republican not carry a single slaveholding state, there were entire counties in the Democratic South where he did not receive a single popular vote. Not even one. Not even as a joke or a protest. That's because the slaveholding, racist, Democratic states and politicians that had just left the Union to form the Confederacy knew that the election of a Republican president meant the end of slavery in America. You see this flag that modern Democrats try to pin on Republicans? It was invented, as was the entire Confederacy, because Democrats walked out of the Union because once a Republican president had been elected, slavery was finished in America. Now that's why the person perhaps most singly responsible for ending slavery in America, the brilliant and courageous Frederick Douglass, once wrote, quote, I'm a Republican, a black, dyed-in-the-wool Republican, and I never intend to belong to any other party than the party of freedom and progress. Don't believe me? Look it up. Moving on. In 1864, one year after Republican Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, the Democrats ran as their candidate George B. McClellan. Now, Lincoln had appointed the little Napoleon to command the Army of the Potomac, march down to Richmond, and end the war. But McClellan, who kept demanding more men, more wagons, more artillery, and more time, never seemed to get around to it. Until finally he did, where he was promptly whipped by Robert E. Lee in the Peninsula Campaign. Now, although personally for continuing the war, McClellan bowed to the Democratic Party platform that called for immediate peace with the Confederacy, a move that would have ended the war and also given us two countries, one in which their cherished institution of slavery stayed intact. Now, one of the most influential Democratic delegates of 1864 was Clement Bellendingham from Ohio. He had called the Civil War to end slavery, quote, a wicked, cruel, and unnecessary war, unquote. His call for the Constitution as it is and the Union as it was became the de facto Democratic Party platform of 1864. The Union as it was, of course, meant the Union where slavery would be allowed to continue as it had under Democratic presidents. Unfortunately for the formerly Democrat and now Confederate slaveholders, the Confederacy lost that war, but they immediately went into overdrive in order to win the peace for racism. I hate to break it to you, but it was defeated Democrats that started the Ku Klux Klan, and it was the same former and then once again Democrats that created in the years right after the Civil War two modern institutions, gun control and marriage licenses. Gun control was enacted by Southern Democrats in order to keep guns out of the hands of newly freed black people. And marriage licenses, you know, the idea that the government could tell people who could marry whom, 
was invented by Democrats to prevent black people from marrying white people. Don't believe me? Look it up. All of those lynchings, those were Democrats. The first black senators and representatives, they were all Republicans, including these two men. Republican Hiram Rebels, the first black member of Congress, and Joseph Ramey, who became pro-tempore Speaker of the House of Representatives and who received death threats from Southern Democrats for his efforts to suppress the KKK by force. Charming people, these Democrats, aren't they? It was Southern Democrats that wrote the Jim Crow laws that segregated the South in the century after the Civil War, and it was the post-Reconstruction elections of these Southern Democrats that were responsible for colored-only drinking fountains and colored-only cafeteria spaces and all the rest. Now, while it's hard to talk about the history of the Democratic Party without their incessant racism, which continues to this day, let's just very quickly look at Democratic economics. Now, between 1920 and 1921, the United States entered its first actual depression. You probably haven't heard of it because it didn't last very long, and it didn't last very long because a Republican named Calvin Coolidge was president at the time, facing an economic slowdown at least as severe as the one that was to follow a decade later. Coolidge, being a Republican, cut the tax rate from 73%. In a few years, it became 24%. And he slashed federal spending by half. Shockingly, slashing the amount of money businessmen had to pay in taxes gave them more money to spend on their businesses, and that's exactly what they did. They were out of the Depression within a year or so, and the rest of the decade was called the Roaring Twenties because it was the economy that was roaring. Now, ten years later, a Democratic president, Franklin Roosevelt, was faced with a similar set of problems. Roosevelt didn't cause the Depression, but his policies did turn it into the Great Depression. Unlike Republican Coolidge, who cut taxes and federal spending, FDR, the Democrat, raised the tax rate to 94% on the people who had the money to invest in getting businesses back on their feet. That money went to Washington for feel-good public works programs that created no new wealth at all instead of letting businesses get back to work. What Coolidge killed in two years, Roosevelt's policies grew and nurtured into an 11-year Great Depression catastrophe that gutted this country so severely that people simply let him get away with anything he wanted, including most of the social welfare vote-buying that has turned what was once the richest country into the world into the most indebted country in the world. Now, the Donkey Party also got their hooves into the Constitution, and that's not a pretty tale either. I could and have, in fact, done about an hour on each of the three big progressive amendments, but we don't have that kind of time. So, in a nutshell, the 16th Amendment gave us the income tax so that today you can send about half of your money to Democrats in Washington for them to buy votes with. The 17th Amendment gave all of your power to Democrats in Washington by changing the way the people were elected to the Senate the House of the States, which had previously protected states' interests and power, but which now became sort of a glorified country club. And, of course, the 18th Amendment prohibition, which deprived you of your ability to have a drink at the end of the day to soften the blow of all of these racist and economic nightmares Democrats have inflicted upon America. By the way, it took Democrats to pass the only constitutional amendment to actually take away an existing freedom. It's kind of what they do, taking away people's freedom, but back to race. When those attack dogs were unleashed on black children trying to go to school in the South in the early 1960s, they were unleashed by Democrats like Bull Connor, Lester Maddox, and George Wallace. 
And when those fire hoses were turned on peaceful black protesters, those orders came from those same Democrats. So, why does black America vote so solidly Democratic? Well, the Democrats will tell you that the teams switch sides. You know, I didn't happen to get that memo. You know, the memo is saying that all the racists now have to leave the Democratic Party and become Republicans, and all of the slavery-hating Republicans have to suddenly join the hated party of the Confederate battle flag, the KKK, and Jim Crow. I didn't get the memo because the memo doesn't exist. No one switched sides. The entire idea is ridiculous. It didn't happen. But something did happen. There was a switch, all right. And it was a switch masterminded by the great Democratic champion of black America, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Realizing that the South was emerging from its racist past to start voting Republican, he knew the game was over, and then he had an epiphany. Republicans and Democrats didn't switch sides, but the Democrats most certainly did switch strategies. And that switch in strategy can best be summed up by a direct quote from Democratic President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who said in the presence of two Southern governors, and I quote, I'll have those voting Democratic for the next 200 years. And so far, he has. Because that was the new strategy for the Democrats. You see, and it's worked like a charm. Buy the votes of black America with handouts. You know, just enough to keep them coming back every two years. It's a Democratic vote plantation is what it is. And black America is enslaved to it as thoroughly as they were when they were slaves under Democratic politicians and policies, as we've just seen. The Democrats have hired, and at sub-minimum wage, I might add, black America to vote for them in exchange for crappy housing, crappy food, crappy EBT cards, and crappy Obama phones. And if you're a black American who's wondering why things just get worse and worse for black America, well, your answer is that when it comes to your Democratic benefactors, you're not a customer. You're an employee. You're a minimum wage employee. We Republicans find this entire entitlement slavery disgusting. We want no part of it. The Republican Party was formed in opposition to slavery of any kind, and it remains that way to this day. So, why haven't you heard about this horrible tale that belongs to that donkey? Well, it's because of what my friend and colleague Andrew Clavin calls the Democratic Ring of Power. It's the press, or in Andrew's words, they're precious. Like the Ring of Power, it grants Democrats the power of invisibility. The power to come back again and again and again with their policies of economic failure and racial slavery, secure in the knowledge that no one will ever see what they did the last time they tried it. All right, so we're going to go ahead and give it a, a pause right there. And you can see what we're, we're working towards here. We're trying to do an exposure in, in before your mind and before your ears so that you can begin to understand the reality of the truth that's being suppressed. The reality of the truth that you cannot find on the television or on the internet. And you would think that these huge conglomerates that Google, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, the, you know, these huge companies would have some kind of idea what reality is, but we're, we're more interested in passing legislation that will cause cows to, to not fart as much in the pasture across the country so that will eliminate global warming. But that, that's the kind of mental constraints and the deficiencies of intellect that you're going to see from kids who are run through the public school systems and who read their news on the internet. So let's give it a little break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back here at the Looking Glass Forum. I appreciate you guys working with us and going through these episodes. And I think that the point that I was trying to make earlier is that I think that this 
entire 16-year plan that we're looking at unfolding, this this whole mechanism of deconstruction that was set to end the United States of America once and for all, was really set back when Donald Trump was elected. I think that they had intended that under Hillary, we would go through this COVID lockdown I don't think that it's just a happenstance of nature that suddenly they're from Chinese labs, there's the released a virus which basically doesn't hurt anybody. And they took that as some kind of international mandate to shut the whole world down. And then at the same time, you can see that the Black Lives Matter protests, which were happening back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, was the Black Lives Matter Banners and marches were taking place in Venezuela. So we, we've seen those, you know, those uh, communist tactics before, and now they're in America and they're well funded. Antifa is well funded, and people are talking about George Soros, but George Soros really just represents the international elite and the men like him, the men who, the many in his rank who are going to fund these operations. And really, we need to know who they are. And I think that they intended for us to, for her first two years, that she would be taking away the guns and under a Hillary Clinton presidency, and that after that we would have a COVID lockdown, and after that we would have a communist. Marxist, neo-communist revolution, a racially divisive, racially specific revolution, and they would go ahead and do what we're seeing now. I think that that was the plan all along. And the, but the simple fact is, is that Donald Trump came into power, and a lot of these pedophile rings are being exposed. And so now they're setting off their plan to destroy America with all the ferocity that they can muster, because if they fail, and we can get through an election cycle with Donald Trump being reelected, then that means that justice will be served, and that this deep state, Illuminati, international elite force will be able to be wrecked. As we're elaborating on this complexity of social destabilization and the rhetoric that accompanies this propaganda that ensures that people are going to come into conflict with their neighbors, it's really an ideology that, we're, that we see springing out of Marxism. And as we're talking about this whole issue about slavery in the past and American history, we have to come to terms with the facts of history first. So here's a really interesting little take from David Horowitz and Dennis Prager. Let's take a listen. You just don't know if you're out there in public. So I, I think that Trump was confident in his moral values from having been, you know, brought up uh, with, as it were, the civil rights movement. He even got awards, um, and that allowed him to go right in the face of his enemies and people. The reason that his supporters are so loyal is they see the wounds that the guy is taking to them. And standing up to it, um, you, you gotta love him for that. He's got faults. You know, courage, lacking courage, is not one of them. That's and right. That's making, making all the difference. <laughs> yeah. It's because I think the Ameri you know, the American people are not stupid. As a people, there are lots of stupid people among us, but as a people, they're not stupid. And. They can see the Democrats, they want open borders, they support our enemies. I mean, China with China and the coronavirus, you know, that, that was, a, in effect, a biological weapon they used against the rest of the world. And the Democratic Party is blaming Trump and defending World Health Organization, which is run by a terrorist. Uh, wait, wait, you break the you, Democrats you, you, are willing to you, do, but it is, a, it is a treasonous party, and I think most Americans are patriotic. Let me read. Uh, let me read something from your book. Uh, 
give people an idea why this is so important. It's a very brief book. The top ten lies the Democrats have told you. And let me read you number four from his book, Blitz. Slavery and racism are America's true heritage. His answer, no, freedom is. That's exactly right. Everyone in the world, every society on earth, black societies, white societies, Arab societies, all practiced slavery. The legacy of America, the heritage of America, is freedom. That's... that's, Go on. It's a big lie. I mean, Al Sharpton said white people had their knee on the necks of blacks for 401 years. Well, that's 1619. There was no America in 1619. It was an English colony. And as a matter of fact, in Virginia, where the 20 alleged slaves were shipped, which is why the left wants to make that our founding, um, they were indentured servants, like the rest of labor in Virginia. Virginia uh, outlawed slavery at the time. It wasn't instituted until the end of the 17th century. And America was born with this revolutionary idea. I mean, slavery had been accepted by all societies and all moral pieces for 3,000 years. Until Athens, Protestant Christians said it was immoral, and Thomas Jefferson wrote into the Declaration of Independence not only that all men are created equal, but they have a God-given right to liberty. Within 87 years, that's the duration of slavery in America. First of all, they slaves they started freeing the slaves in the North. They were, I think, all free by 1807, and the slave trade was outlawed. But, you know, they shrank from going to war with the South because the South was strong and it would have allied with the British who had burned the White House. But 87 years later, at the cost of 350,000 mainly white lives, the slaves were free and slavery was abolished. That's the Emancipation Proclamation, 87 years, not 401. And the, 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 the brute fact of the matter is all the slaves shipped to America were enslaved by black Africans. You know, you even hear Mitch McConnell bowing to this, these lies. That's right. All right, so we're just going to pause it there. And as we proceed, I just want to make it more clear that what is so hard to define amongst all the news articles and the differing opinions and the strange chaotic politics we're seeing is that we're facing the pinnacle of an inevitable conflict, an ideological war, where large groups of the population will be divided by their a priori philosophical premises, the beliefs that they have held as presuppositions before all all else. And these are the beliefs that you decide are foundational points in reality which cannot be moved. You don't believe there is a God, or perhaps you do. You believe that no one should have private property, or you do believe you should have a right to own private property. You believe a man was evolved from a monkey and protoplasm with no external divine intervention, just nothing, or you don't believe that. You believe there are two biological genders, or you don't believe that. You believe in the elimination of all fossil fuels and a sustainable development globalist program and Agenda 21 United Nations government to ensure the environment is saved, or you don't believe that. So as we proceed forward, we have these deeply held presuppositions, these things that we have determined are the truth of our reality, and they we have decided this previous to all other beliefs, so our politics, 
our philosophical concepts, our imagination, our ability to speak, the words we use, the way that we imagine the contour and shape of the universe itself, what we expect from other people, what we project onto them that we harbor within ourselves, the different ideas that we allow other people to share with us or not to. These, All these dynamics that really determine who we are and control how we think and what we'll say and what we'll do are outgrowths of these philosophical instruments that were inculcated into our lives when we were much younger. So people's ideas are very different. And we can see this with abortion rights. Abortion and the belief that someone's own personal life is more important than the life in utero. And the idea that someone shouldn't be forced to bring another life into the world, which fails to see that as a species we are procreating. And ultimately a lot of this has to do with family dynamics. I think it's obvious that if a woman was loved and cared for by a man who encouraged her and supported her to have a baby, then she would have a baby. But if she was with a man and she was impregnated who disappeared and cheated on her and abused her and, 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 and was not around and there was no one there in the world to help her support having this baby, then she might have to make the decision in her life or be tempted to impressed it decided that she needed to survive as almost a survival instinct and so it can be understood how these things could happen but ultimately there's a responsibility there and we see that with these neo-communist networks they're all anti-man anti-hierarchical family or whatever all the diet all the the rhetoric they're going to use in order to specify that they're not interested in having a nuclear family with a mom and a dad and a couple of kids grow up happily they, they aren't interested in seeing that at all and a lot of these type of people are not interested in marriage and if they have a homosexual lifestyle then they're not going to be able to procreate children anyway so they're really even these socialists who are out burning up things in the streets they're really interested in an immoral lifestyle they're not interested in producing a productive happy balanced family with a spouse and having monogamy that's not part of the plan so there's really no way for us to have a productive youth that grow up to be a productive civilization that are people that help old ladies across the street those kind of moral constructs will be completely destroyed if the left gets what they want. I think we're seeing the establishment and the popularization of a wider criminal culture that really makes it cool to, you know, in the contemporary uh, music that you can hear on the radio station, it, it, it's cool to slap a hoe or to sell crack in your neighborhood or to become part of a gang and to, to not be married. In a lot of cases, it's considered to be white if you are educating and if you know how to read and, you, and you're getting good grades. So there's a, a deconstruction of the black community that we're seeing. And I think this is intentional. I don't think this is an accident at all. I mean, you don't go from Martin Luther King Jr. marching peacefully with the kind of marriage and, and very low divorce rates we saw in the black community at that time to now we have people like Little Wayne with the face tattoos and the 35 murders a weekend in Chicago. I mean, this is a murder culture. So let's stop playing around. Let's stop lying to ourselves and pretending like there's some kind of black-white dynamic. There's no black-white dynamic here, okay? There really is just an American dynamic, and people are being pitted against themselves within their own communities, and we need to really regulate the kind of the kind of mass influence that's penetrating into our inner cities and that says that they're going to use freedom of speech to to say that murder and crack dealing and gangland tactics are going to somehow be popularized so that we can and if we could just have ferraris if we can just have ferraris and make a record deal like cardi b then it's all worth it but really ultimately it's the corrosion of the society and the moral 
decay that's taking place that allows for this kind of wider societal erosion. So no one wants to pay for anything or everyone wants to be able to just take the goods and the and the things that belong to their neighbors. Because what we're seeing, like I said, is the inciting and the inflaming of a criminal culture among our youth. And, and crime isn't just against the cops. Crime is against the entire society itself. So when when you having young people, little kids, little three-year-olds are carrying around signs that say, fuck the police, you can see that the demoralization of the youth in the schools and with the parents is generational. And so ultimately, we're going to face this insurmountable conflict. And it probably won't be as organized as the Civil War was in the sense that there was two different armies and they had different colors and flags. It was very European. I think this is going to be more of a, a descent into a total civil conflagration. And it'll require the, the state the federal state to come in and to get involved. And I think that's really the whole point. And that's what people are talking about, how communism and fascism works together. And communism comes in to a nation and starts to ruin it. And when the nation tries to create stability and take power back, then the nationalism will derange the body politic and become a tyranny process will most assuredly be totally destructive for the United States. And you can see that this criminal culture dovetails quite nicely with the radicalism of Antifa and the socialists who are really out there telling people that are committing crimes on a large scale and selling drugs in the inner cities and, and cooking crack and, and really all these drugs and the meth, it really just destroys the fabric of the city and destroys the people and destroys the families entirely as they all get addicted with addictions that are almost impossible to to overcome. So these these drugs and these politics and this entire criminal culture, this murder culture works together as they're inciting the people with the Black Lives Matter mantra, which is just no think. It's just this sense of black racism. And then it gives it a justification with the socialization to say th this whole system of capitalism needs to be destroyed. So just go and run through these stores and murder people and take things and just, just become an, an ongoing anarchic crime wave. That's really what it comes down to. And I think that a lot of these groups are being fundamentally supported to destroy our society and to provoke a racial cataclysm. And ultimately, as the people of the country who are trying to go to work every day and who are having problems paying their taxes and they have to keep up with their small business and pay their employees and somehow make ends meet, all these tens and hundreds of millions of middle-class people, when they start to have to fight for their survival, then the BLM, Antifa, neo-communist revolutionaries will realize that the police were there to protect them from the outrage of the mass public. So when the outrage of the mass public becomes so oversaturated with these images on the internet and with these gouge-you-in-the-eye tactics from the politicians, I think that you'll see a mass uprising and there will be no way to constrain the violence. There will be no way for the black community to be safe once they've already been provoked into in the inner cities into an outrageous criminal upheaval and they're already being rounded up by federal police just as antifa is so you can see the danger ahead if biden is elected because if biden is elected then you can see that the suburban white middle class people of this country will be the ones in danger so this really becomes a politically an existential fight that no one wanted that didn't exist five years ago, but we're being, this whole propaganda rhetoric is being descended on us. It's being superimposed into our culture through the media, through pop stars, 
through all these different people to take one side or the other. It's a dialectic process. We talked about it before, the Hegelian dialectic, and that's what we're dealing with right now. So ultimately, you need to learn how to save your sanity, to protect your state of mind, to protect, and also protect your home, because these politics are violent, and they're meant to totally, I believe, soften the country up for a military invasion, but also to, to destabilize the foundational constitutional protections. As we have to kind of explore the mindlessness and the pseudo-intellectual propaganda of the neo-communists, like I said, and th- and these, these doctrines are really being brought to the forefront by the financing of the international elite. So as we kind of explore these tighter facets of the conversation, we're going to look at how big tech has a profound influence in our culture today and like the strings of the puppeteer and bringing this BLM, Antifa, neo-socialist uprising into life and giving it a platform by which it can operate and coordinate. So let's discuss that more here. We're on the the Rubin Report again with uh, Ted Cruz, so let's have a listen. What why should the Constitution make a difference? And and I was agreeing with him in that we need to explain that more. Government power the history of humanity is largely a, a history of government oppressing the people. Now, you need some government. I'm not an anarchist. You, you need government to, to protect your, your fundamental rights to, to life, to liberty, to property. John Locke wrote, wrote about the, the, the fundamental natural rights. You need government to impose rule of law. And you see countries that don't have that are disasters. But the more power government has, the less liberty you have. And, and Jefferson had a great way of putting it. He described the Constitution as chains to bind the mischief of government. Um, yeah, you look that, at the First Amendment. Profound, yeah. You know, free speech is not about silencing those who disagree with you. Um, religious liberty. It's not about forcing everyone to practice your faith. It's about saying, look, it's up to you what faith you practice or none at all. That's that's that right of conscience that you get to decide that it's not government that comes in. You know, you just had, all right, you know, you talked about abortion. You, you and I may disagree on abortion, but you just had Joe Biden a week ago say if he's elected, he's coming after the little sisters of the poor. No, I'm completely against that, by the way. I mean, I've done videos on it, yeah. yeah I mean, that is an extreme view. You literally have politicians saying, those damn Catholic nuns, I'm going to go after them and force them to pay for abortion-inducing drugs. And these are nuns who've taken vows of poverty and are helping mm-hmm. the poor and the sick and the needy. And, and government now, for years, has been persecuting them because they must conform. And, and it's just, look, I think being libertarian and live and let live, giving people, like, re- respecting diversity solves a lot of the problems we have in the country. So, so speaking of diversity, then, yeah. do you ever feel it, because you mentioned your father and your family's story, because you're a Republican, because you're on the right, that in many ways, the people who love to scream about diversity all day long, they've sort of stolen that from you. I, I know you don't wave it as a, as a victim card, but your own personal family story, and, and because you you're look white, so to speak, and because you're on the right, you're, you're just a white guy. I, Congratulations. I, look, look I, on, on social media, it, it is amazing you look at some of the, some of the angry protesters. 
who who sometimes are angry angry rich white guys who are telling everyone look the riots that that, that occurred following the horrific killing of George Floyd many of the neighborhoods that were burned down were African American neighborhoods some of the most poignant and powerful videos were of residents there crying going okay you just burned my only grocery store you, you know my you know African American small business owners whose whose stores were destroyed and destroyed by self entitled often middle or upper class kids I think the single biggest lie in all of politics is that Republicans are the party of the rich and Democrats are the party of the poor. I think it's absolutely false. If you look at Democrats today, they are the party of Silicon Valley billionaires. They are the party of Wall Street tycoons. They are the party of power and resources. And and Republicans, the party that I want to be a part of, is a blue-collar party. We're the party of Ohio Steelworkers. We're the party of single moms waiting tables. We're the party of, of teenage kids like my dad washing dishes. Why? Because opportunity is why the ability of people to, to, to have a job and to work is powerful. Do you, do you see that as the ultimate irony of what's happened with Silicon Valley is that I think privately, I mean, I know a lot of these guys, privately they're libertarians. Of course they are because they want to create, they love competition, and they want to be taxed low so that their businesses can thrive. And then publicly what you see them say is completely the reverse. Well, look, I mean, Silicon Valley is so bad that, you know, Peter, <laughs> um, yeah. Peter has been a buddy of mine for for. 25 years. Peter and I were friends before he he, he had made his money. Uh, When Peter and I became friends, it was the mid-90s, and he was a a corporate lawyer practicing law. Um, Silicon Valley is so bad that Peter was driven out of it. I mean, he moved to L.A. Los Angeles. Like, like, it... it, it, uh, it, You know something's wrong when you're coming to L.A. for a safe haven from the left. It's... and, And there's... Big tech is about power, and and it's also about virtue signaling. It's about showing that you're morally self-righteous. Um, and when they're driving someone like Peter Thiel out, saying you are a heretic, and and it's it's on view after view after view that there is you know it's interesting. <sighs> It's a religious fervor. Mm -hmm. It's become the new religion. Wokeness is, and and by the way, no one can be too pure. Like like it. I I mean, there's an element of like Robespierre setting up the the the, the guillotine, where where they will come after if someone is only ninety nine percent woke. Well, the one percent's coming after them. Yep. And and that's well, that's, we see that with all with all these Hollywood people, right? Because no matter how much they beg, they think it's going to spare them. But it's not going to be the angry Trump supporters who come to burn down their mansions. Uh, it's going to be these other guys, no matter what penance you offer them. But that sort of gets back to what I was asking you before about: Do you think that because the worldview is bereft of anything other than politics, that the hole it leaves actually it leaves you with? You know what people would say is a God-shaped hole that there that there there is no sort of spiritual anything there, so you become you become the very thing that you hate in essence. 
Yeah, I'm not sure Big Tech hates it all that much. So we'll go ahead and just pause their interview right there. And we arrive at this central place within the greater discussion as a united society where we must ask ourselves, how complete is the leftist neo-communist brainwash? Their their propaganda doctrine, how much control does it exert? How willing, how far are they willing to go? And this social justice war is far more than a rudimentary choice to elect a familiar candidate. These people are actively coming after the citizenry. They're tearing down the police force, which is there to protect the the citizens, and they're finding their comrades within the local city governments who are helping to support this. This push to overthrow America that rises out of those throwback Bolshevik fanatics who have replaced God with the secular state and to require absolute submission to their fanatical political doctrine. This episode is running long. I just want to return to the interesting discussion with uh, C.T. Wilcox in his book, Transformation of the Republic. So let's get back into that discussion. Uh, so, and, and, you know, let's let's take a look back at Lincoln real quick, too, uh, because I want to get into the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, I had spoken, I guess, to all the other guests to a certain extent that Lincoln, obviously, even at that time, they knew what the deal was. If you get elected, you've got to do some shilling for the powers that be. I think what happens is you can tell what presidents changed their mind, had a change of heart, or maybe even try to do something on their own position because they get killed. And they got nailed for it. Okay, now, give me your assessment of Lincoln in these terms. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, he's a politician and a shill who might have a change of heart, and we can't have that. If, if, you know, that's what I'm throwing out there. What do you think? Well, i just respond by using Lincoln's own, own words on the matter. Uh, he said that, uh, and this comes from the Lincoln Encyclopedia, uh, spoken and written words uh, of Abraham Lincoln uh, by Macmillan publishers. He said, the money power, that's like the Rothschilds and the Jesuits, preys upon the nation in times of peace and conspires against it in times of adversity. It is more despotic than monarchy, more insolvent than autocracy, more selfish than bureaucracy. I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned. An era of corruption will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the the republic is destroyed. So yeah, Lincoln knew exactly where the problem was coming from. And, uh, and then went on to say that, uh, that, that if we allow it, uh, we only have ourselves to blame. So it would be like a form of national suicide. Yeah. And, you know, we, we hear a lot about the story of Lincoln uh, having a portentous dream that he would not live out his second term. I think he thought he'd, he'd last... I think two years into it, I don't, I don't believe that wasn't true. I don't know if he had that dream or not, and he might very well have, but I got a feeling that when he changed his heart, he had to know that there was, from that time onward, a bullseye on him. Mm-hmm. Well, he apparently he relayed that that dream to uh, Charles Chinnicky. Okay. Yeah. Also, I just want to throw this in here, because that's uh, something I think is really rich, and I'm glad that you did this. Uh, in the second edition, did you also include that image that you had in the first transformation 
where there was a headline from a New York Daily that uh, uh, stated that Buchanan and his inaugural party had been poisoned. Did that make it into the second edition? I may have. I quoted it. I know that. All right. Well, I didn't change. I didn't change anything from the uh, first edition. Okay. I've kind of added, but the uh, imagery, like uh, I may have changed a few things here and there. I know I put in a whole lot more photographs and, and a lot a lot more uh, well, newspaper things and whatnot. Huh? But but the actual transcription of those newspaper articles are still in there. Okay. No, because I thought that was great, because you can't argue about this being a conspiracy theory. I think it was the telegram at that day that would later merge, uh, and then they both uh, went the way of nickel candy, because I remember those papers at the very end of their run. Mm -hmm. I think it was the New York World Telegraph. I think that was it. And I think, anyway, one of those dailies had those headlines, you know, and, and so it stated very clearly, can you imagine... In 18, I guess that was, what, 56? Mm. I mean, can you imagine even now uh, reading that your uh, president and his people were poisoned at their inaugural celebration? <laughs> Whoa. And that never makes it into the history books, Charles. And I'm glad you have it there because nobody can say, oh, that didn't happen. Yeah. Good for you. Mm. All right. Uh, so, so Lincoln knows now, right? That, uh, he knows. He, he, knows. He, he saw that that, uh, that the bankers were compromising all of the political leaders uh, of America. They were using their money like to grease the palms of like everyone they could, and that they that the politicians were selling their country out for you know a, a bowl of pottage, as it were, and uh, and 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 tried to stop it. Right. Uh, and, and this might bring us, I don't know, uh, do you want to say anything about Booth before we go on? About Booth? No. Okay, I mean, really, it doesn't need anything to be said, but I would say this, uh, I think as you'll agree, and, and Epperson was big on this, Booth was known to have been a knight of the Golden Circle, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got the actual uh, oath that they had to take. And also, the Knights of the Golden Circle were pretty much prepped for what they had to do to instigate, at least in the South, this idea of, of a, perhaps of a civil war. But they were uh, more or less briefed in, in Great Britain and let loose here. Is that is that correct? Uh, I think so. I never got too much into the inner workings of the Knights of the Golden Circle. I, I, I mentioned the fact that, yeah, they existed. I mentioned the fact that, yeah, a lot of the conspirators belonged to it, particularly Booth. Right. And, uh, and they were being funded by the European powers. That'll do it. Yeah. Okay. So they had money stashed, like, everywhere. And they were kind of, you know, running sort of like a guerrilla war. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've heard it phrased a number of ways. That would be another one of them. That their uh, their intent was, and, and they successfully began paramilitary organizations. The lights, I think you could call it, they, they call them shooting clubs. <laughs> uh, the point's clear, and is what you said also, you know, is, is what I have also come upon. But um, if we can even move on now, uh, you know, uh, one of the other things that you also include are some of the, the uh, communications by Romanists 
uh, even in the upper Midwest, uh, that kind of belied that there was a desire at that time uh, to perhaps hijack the United States in one way or another and put it into uh, liege, if you will, to the Vatican. Mm -hmm. And would that have necessarily been, well, not necessarily militarily, would it, would it have been financial? What, what, what is the deal on, on what the plan was after the fact? Well, from what I understand, they wanted to kickstart the Civil War all over again. Uh, but this time, all of a sudden, now you've got, like, no leadership at the top insofar as the uh, North is concerned, right? So they'd be kind of running around willy-nilly, not knowing what the hell to do. Then you then you kickstart the Civil War all over again, now that you've gotten rid of these top politicians, and turn it into a religious war of extermination. Uh, I had one letter that was written to Abraham Lincoln not too long before his assassination, stating that the, church, the Roman churches, uh, the basements anyway, were stockpiled with uh, weaponry to be handed out to their congregations on a given signal, right? Whether it's ringing church bells in the middle of the night or whatever it happened to be, um, then then they would kind of distribute all this weapon and then run around like it was the, the Bartholomew Massacre all over again and start killing their Protestant neighbors. You know, on, on face to a lot of people, that'll sound uh, fantastic, not believable. But they don't really understand uh, just how deeply the hatred is uh, definitely exhibited by the Society of Jesus towards those who are not Romanists. Uh, as it says, I believe in that oath, that they will extirpate the heretics by any means necessary, and those heretics are anybody who may not be Romanist. Yeah, well, I mean, their hatred is on par with what you see now every day regarding uh, fanatical Islam. Right. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's hard for people to believe that such an entrenched organization has been around now for, like, that's probably six centuries, named the Society of Jesus, and it has a Jesus word in there, that, that people, and of course, this is a brilliant stroke. How could people just, not understanding and not going into the subject matter, how would they believe that the, something called the Society of Jesus would, in fact, be uh, some of the most preeminent killers that this globe has ever seen. It is hard until you start to understand and, 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 and take a look at exactly how they've operated over the centuries. You know, yeah. Do you, uh, do you have anything, that, have you found in, in your research, or if it's conjecture, say so, it would be an educated guess, but you'll tell us. Uh, how much do you believe, or do you know, Lincoln had a clue about with regard to the Rothschilds uh, and the Jesuit connection. We'll just stop the interview there, and we might just add that we can see that these these really intense dialectic pressures within politics that are pushing from the radical neo-communists on the left, pushing against the nationalist uh, Republicans on the right, we can see that the white Americans are being 
pressed with increasing pressure to become a right-wing radical fascist movement. And you can see that it's their intention to unify the Republican Party under this nationalist platform as the the neo-socialists and communists on the left are tearing the country apart. The reactionary, radical Republican nationalists will attempt to fight to protect their country. So we can see that this dialectic conflagration is being set up. And this interview was done with Visigoth and C.T. Wilcox in 2009, so they're looking pretty far ahead at this point. We're getting an unfiltered perspective that you have never heard before. You have some work to do in order to discover the truth and do your own research within the facts of history, and those facts in history are spelled out in no uncertain terms. America's foundation as an independent nation separated from the authority of the religion of Rome and its sovereign religious dictatorship and the person of the papacy cannot go unchallenged by the international elite power structure, the European aristocracy, the nobility, the knighthoods of the Pope. This power structure, this Illuminati structure, will continue its policy of religio-cultic supremacy and imperialism unabated. The moment you question or doubt their divine right or resist their perverse child-molesting priests, then you too will become a Protestant, a heretic, an excommunicate. And when it is safe to do so, you too will be extirpated. So that's all we have this week, and I hope that you'll be back with us again.